The real solution to this problem is adding some form of limited covenant to Bitcoin. Without that, any answer to the problem is simply in one way or another to introduce trust in the form of some entity co-signing transactions, or being a member in a federation custodying coins, or some other relationship where people using a service or protocol must trust some operator to behave honestly. That frankly sucks. Regulators will continue coming down on those custodians, making more demands for information, more demands on restrictions for what users can do with their money. They will not stop. So short of actually activating covenants on Bitcoin, what can we do? The best in Bitcoin made audible. I am Guy Swan, and this is Bitcoin Audible. What is up, guys? Welcome back to Bitcoin Audible. I am Guy Swan, the guy who has read more about Bitcoin than anybody else you know. And we have got a fun episode today. We have got a read. This is another one from Shinobi on uh, at Bitcoin Magazine. And this one is all about bringing back Uncle Jim. How do we make Uncle Jim great again? Because this was an idea that was talked about quite a bit and we covered the concept on the show, you know, the, the coined the term Uncle Jim, but it felt like something that never really got off the ground. We never really launched into, and we still just kind of use the most convenient major app, being one of the prime examples for specifically custodians being Wallet of Satoshi and their recent decision to basically just remove themselves from the United States. And as the ag because of the regulatory environment, and as the regulatory environment becomes more and more hostile, and they start grasping for more and more control and surveillance into custodians and people who are providing services, who are trying to offer usability to people, how do we combat that? Like, what's the, what's the easiest way in the transition to covenants to you know, the bit v potential BitVM solutions to ARC, like before we get to these, this next era of potentially layer three sort of scaling solutions, as we run into the limits of using Lightning and onboarding into Lightning when we have high fees on chain, how can we buy ourselves another few years? How can we mitigate that, that consolidation of trust into huge corporate exchanges and service providers that are going to be choked by the regulatory environment by trying to reestablish the framework of the traditional financial system onto the emerging Bitcoin system. And I think this article in particular in this concept is a really good one to have a frame of reference for tackling this as we move into this era. Before we jump into it, I want to thank CoinKite and the Cold Card Hardware Wallet for supporting this show. Do not forget you can get 9% off with my code BitcoinAudible. If you have not done your holiday shopping yet, there is no gift like the gift of sovereignty. Go to BitcoinAudible.com slash cold card and check out their store. There's literally a ton of great stuff. If you, if you have anybody who's remotely into Bitcoin, there is something really cool that you can get them at CoinKite. Check it out. The link will be in the show notes. All right. With that, let's get into today's read. And... It's titled, 
The recent decision by Wallet of Satoshi to stop serving customers in the United States brings us to a crossroads in the evolution of Lightning's use as a consumer tool. While it is trusted and custodial, Wallet of Satoshi has been invaluable needs in giving Uncle casual Jim, users a functional and reliable tool for Whatever small value to payments Uncle Jim, made across the Lightning care network. About lending a helping this hand departure anymore? from serving the U.S. will leave a massive hole in the Lightning toolbox for American Bitcoiners. Custodial tools are not the ideal type of tool, especially for anything beyond small amounts, but it is impossible to deny that they have a place in this ecosystem. They are not for everyone, and certainly not, in my opinion, for anything even remotely approaching a significant sum of money. But they can be useful when the risks are well understood by users. This is just a simple, undeniable fact of Bitcoin. From a purely impartial economic point of view, this is an inevitable reality. Fees will go up if demand for block space increases past the available supply. This will price out lower-value users and use cases. Do you want to pay a $20 fee for opening a $50 or $100 Lightning Channel? Most people will say no. That leaves custodial arrangements. The problem with that is twofold. First, you are no longer the person in control of your money. The custodian is, and you have no real recourse except to trust them. If they screw you over, there is nothing at all you can do except, if you're lucky, wait and see how things play out in the courtroom. Second, you have absolutely no privacy. Your custodian sees everything you do with your money, every payment you receive, every payment you send, everything. The more that fees go up, the more people are going to be stuck making this compromise due to sheer economic pressure. The real solution to this problem is adding some form of limited covenant to Bitcoin. Without that, any answer to the problem is simply in one way or another to introduce trust in the form of some entity co-signing transactions, or be a member in a federation custodying coins, or some other relationship where people using a service or protocol must trust some operators to behave honestly. That frankly sucks. Regulators will continue coming down on those custodians, making more demands for information, more demands on restrictions for what users can do with their money. They will not stop. So short of actually activating covenants on Bitcoin, what can we do? Make more custodians. Plebnet, while a mess in terms of privacy issues and not something actually profitable from the business sense, showed that lots of relatively non-technical Bitcoiners actually could handle running a full Lightning node if they devoted the time to doing so. They helped each other find people to peer with in open channels, helped troubleshoot technical issues, and ensured that people maintained a relatively high uptime for their nodes. They showed it could be done. What do you trust more with your money? A giant faceless corporation subject to any arbitrary regulation with no feasible ability to dodge around it, or someone you have known personally for years, such as a close friend or family member. Personally, I trust the giant faceless corporation more. Just kidding. Lightning has many issues to deal with right now, ultimately requiring either as-of-yet-unknown inventive designs or consensus changes to Bitcoin. That is why something like Wallet of Satoshi became so popular. It addresses all of those issues through economies of scale. One user managing a channel for just themselves can be expensive and uneconomical, but one person managing a channel for many users piggybacking on their node, 
quickly becomes very cheap and economical on a per-user basis. So, let's do that in a more distributed way. Obviously, it won't be as cheap and cost-effective as a massive service such as Wallet of Satoshi, but groups of friends, families, and wider social circles all sharing a single lightning node will make it cost-effective enough to be practical if individually owned self-custodial channels are not. There is already plenty of tooling for this available right now. LNBits, LND Hub, Cashew, Fediment, and probably many more I'm not even aware of. The software to do it exists right now. With Cashew and Fediment, it can even be done in a privacy-preserving way, where the operator has no clue which user is sending or receiving which payments. The government might be able to easily go after a large operation like Wallet of Satoshi to enforce regulations. But how about thousands of people, all running small lightning nodes and serving a dozen or so close friends and family? That's not practical at scale. It would also look completely and utterly absurd and ridiculous from a public perception point of view. Kicking in Uncle Jim's door because he was letting Grandma use his lightning node to send and receive payments because Grandma would inevitably screw up and lose all of her money doing it herself? Just think through how that would be perceived by the wider public who don't care or think about Bitcoin aside from the headlines that the media shoves in their face. The current realities of lightning are what they are. It's not ready for self-custodial use at scale unless you are willing to pay the higher economic cost and deal with the added technical complexity. That will change over time, but for right now, it's how things are. It's more complicated than just downloading a wallet like Phoenix or Breeze, but PlebNet showed that running a full lightning node is absolutely possible for a dedicated power user. You don't have to be a developer to use it. As well, node-in-a-box solutions like Citadel and Umbral have made it plug-and-play, and both of them support LN bits in their app stores. Wallet of Satoshi stopping their service in the U.S. sucks. It was an incredibly useful app that smoothed over a lot of the rough edges of the current state of Lightning without requiring invasive information collection to use it. It will definitely create a hole for American Bitcoin users. Uncle Jim can step in and fill that hole. This show is brought to you by the Cold Card Hardware Wallet. My favorite setup, which I know I talk about a lot, is the Nunchuck wallet on mobile that just connects directly to or just talks NFC whenever I need to sign. The Nunchuck does not hold my keys. It is securely on my cold card, not connected to the internet, not vulnerable to a phishing email or any malware or anything like that. If I ever need to send a transaction, I just create the transaction on my Nunchuck wallet and I tap it to my cold card. I hit sign. I tap it again and then off it goes. There is no easier interface and way of interacting that grants a higher level of security, in my opinion, than that right there. It's genuinely incredible to me that we even have this capability in the Bitcoin space. And CoinKite has just made an entire suite of fascinating security and just fun Bitcoin devices and hardware products, like the Block Clock. Just connect it to your node and have it show the, the Bitcoin price, have it show the block height just right there on your desk in this really cool package. If you haven't checked out what they have to offer, you definitely need to. And don't, when you go over there, do not forget that I have a 9% discount code. Bitcoin Audible, all one word, gets you 9% off. And you can go through the link in the show notes or just remember the discount code, which is not hard. It's just the name of the show. 
Um, uh, you can go through the link in the show notes to go right there, or just go to the store, browse around, see what you want, get yourself a solid hardware wallet, experience the tap to send with a cold card hardware wallet. It is, it's just kind of magical. And uh, get notified for the Q1. I'm really stoked about my, my Cypherpunk BlackBerry, the new model that's going to be coming out. So check that out as well. Um, and uh, yeah, don't forget, 9% off. The link is right in the show notes. Go check them out. All right, so I really, I really like this piece. And I mentioned um, a couple episodes back that I was going to cover something about Uncle Jim. I was, I was going to cover this episode. And the reason is, is because, oh, it was on the, the one about Nodeless. It was the PSA Nodeless, I think. Um, because Nodeless and Wallet of Satoshi, I think, are both pretty good examples of why this model, I think, is so important. And why the the whole friends and family, like the the sort of family trust sort of thing, and not selling this as like a public service, but just providing this benefit to your friends and family. This would be the equivalent of you know you're the guy that goes out and does the, uh, you know you know sets up the computers or does their networking things or you know plugs the stuff plugs all their equipment in like that. I'm I'm that for a lot of people in my friend and family group. Is it being able to provide that for the Bitcoin and Lightning side of the equation, especially before we kind of work out that layer three scaling system? This is one of those things that I've thought that Bitcoin and Lightning is going to do during this kind of long transition process of building out the entire stack and getting this to truly scale to 8 billion people is the, the localized trust, as, you know, I've talked about it so many times on the show, is to go aggressively local, is to think about your trust models from a, from, from a center out, from, from your local situation, is that you have now a technology that will enable us to small-scale provide services. Service provision at a tiny, like, neighborhood, family trust you know, like extended family sort of scope and to do it really efficiently at that scale for it to actually work for 500 million or a billion people if we're talking about groups of 50 or 100. And I think people discount how drastically different that model, that trust model would be, that the ecosystem that built around that, the, the economy that would result from that level of stuff. And I, I actually have to say that I've actually fallen short on this, like really bad. I do not properly provide, like I still tell, you know, friends and family to use the the services and the things that I use rather than what I should be doing is helping them to manage it and being that Uncle Jim. I mean, obviously I am helping them to manage it. Obviously I'm helping them with their hardware wallets and stuff like that, but I should get, I should be getting them to use it more frequently day to day and I should be able to provide them that service. It's one of the reasons why I want to figure out how to set up Nodeless on my own and uh, chatted with UTXO. I just literally have not had the time to get back to it. I've just been kind of, I'm so spending so much trying to catch up to make sure that you guys have episodes and stuff over the Christmas and holiday break that I just haven't had the time to get back to it and to really think about, um, you know, setting up another rather technical project um, and all the pieces that would needed. That would be needed. But there's also one thing that drives me crazy is my LN bits is a pain in the butt and I can't figure out what it is that I'm not doing right. Is the connection D2 
details are not the only thing I ever was able to connect it to is Blue Wallet. But for some reason, I always got an error on Zeus and Zap, which were my main ones. They were the ones I connected my BTC Pay to. And I never quite understood that because it literally says under the QR, it says examples being Zeus and Zap. And I'd go to Connect Wallet and it just I just have the option of selecting a QR. And I scan it and it says invalid. So maybe somebody can actually help me there. Uh, maybe one of you know what I can actually do to make that happen if I'm trying to make sub accounts like user like individual wallets on LMBits and save me from having to actually dedicate real time to figuring it out. Let me know. Shoot me a message on Fountain or Noster or Twitter. I'm a little bit less inclined to answer messages these days just because I don't want to spend too much time over there. But feel free to shoot me a message anyway. I'll try to get to it. Um, and especially if you think you know how to if I'm just doing something stupid or there's like some sort of a setting that I'm missing. So I feel like I've dropped the ball on that a little bit and it's definitely something that I really need to pick back up and take seriously, especially with the attacks. Like we, we just started, we just talked about the FinCEN and the regulatory environment and how basically they are coming down hard. They are trying from as many different avenues as possible to figure out how to restrict our use of this. And I think it's largely because this is about to be heavily legitimized and they can see the writing on the wall as much as we can in the sense of an ETF getting approved and this really flooding into the quote-unquote traditional financial system in a really big way. I think they want to, they're trying to take that framework of traditional finance and traditional licensed institutions and they are trying desperately to twist it and shove it and just make it fit into the Bitcoin ecosystem, the services and the technology. And our best way around that, our best way to mitigate that is to use the characteristics of this tech to provide it at a scale that they're not used to, that is essentially not under their purview because we can actually pull that off. And that always has been to me, especially during the transition in, until we have something that does essentially give a degree of sovereignty, a degree of no matter what, I am the final arbiter of what I own sort of sovereignty to every single user at, a, at the scale of billions of people. We aren't there yet. We don't have that technology yet. Our best way to mitigate the, the path to getting there is to have small scale services directly with people that we know and trust. I feel like we've really just collectively, like as a group, we have kind of dropped the ball on the Uncle Jim model. Or I guess maybe it's, maybe we haven't. Maybe there are actually a lot of people out there doing that um, more directly. It's just, it's something that you specifically don't have any visibility into. So that's an interesting way to think about it is what would that even look like? Like, how would we even know that was happening if it comes to a point where that is in fact a dominant, a dominant part of the ecosystem? But honestly, with the way things are going, with the way the design, and that may, be, that may be where the next stage in the open source technology ought to go, is rather than just specifically self-hosting and trying to make the tools that function properly, uh, because I think we actually have a plethora of a lot of these tools now, um, and specifically with LSPs and that sort of thing to, to make the management of lightning and liquidity a far, far simpler task. But maybe where we really need to start focus, focusing our attention on 
is the service provision. As much as I like LN Bits, it's a little bit counterintuitive in a lot of the things. I'm not a huge fan of using it from a UI perspective, and that's not an insult. Usually things built by really great engineers kind of have that disconnect for a normie user. It's, it's built for people who understand the tech and how it works because that's the perspective it was designed for. And if you go into it knowing exactly what you're getting and understanding how you know, the keys work and the, the, the address is your key, like, you know, you've basically got an onion address, like, it, it kind of makes, I mean, it does make sense from the perspective of someone who is knowledgeable about what it is. But if I gave that link to somebody or, like, generally, just from a context of a user experience, if I go in to create, like, a sub-wallet for something, I go back expecting it to be there. I go back thinking that this is going to be now you know, a, a small database of all of the wallets that are underneath my wallet, their balances and everything so that I can manage and see what is separate from my main balance in a single interface. Like I don't have to go, I don't have to just like wonder if there's lightning balances out there. And you know, if, if I use it for one of my mobile wallets and that mobile wallet has a hundred thousand sats or obviously the more uh, direct example would be someone else, if my wife or my, my mother or somebody like somebody in my family is using it, I want to know exactly how much their balance is so that if I have my master wallet, I'm not like just emptying it while I'm using it. Like I want that segregated. So the way I use it needs to account for the fact that there are sub accounts. So if I'm just using like my main LND node or something, then balances in an LND, in, in a, a LN bits, like a, a sub wallet, as I understand it now, it's not like a, it's not like visibly removed. It's kind of only in LN bits that it really exists, which I guess means if I'm using a wallet, it also needs to be an LN bits wallet so that it is a sub wallet so that, you know, LN bits is managing that. So if I go any higher level, then I have full control over all the funds and I don't see, I don't see the separation. And maybe that's just a simple case, you know, especially with the way AI is going and the ability to you know, we one of the the episode that we just did on AI Unchained uh, about a eulogy for programming. Um, a, a coder considers the end of the the waning days of the craft is what it's referred to or what it was uh, titled. It's a really really good piece, and one of the things that they uh, it, one of the statements that was made in it, one of the lines is that this is like the revenge of the so-so programmer, where somebody who can just kind of understand can now build things to completion and make, you know, blocks of code and like functional things that they simply couldn't do before. And the the guy who was the author is a long term, like like a long time programmer and, you know, has always loved the craft. He's thought of it as like an art. And one of the examples he gave, the stories he told uh, was he works with a friend who's not a very good programmer, but likes to build projects with him and they'll you know, go back and forth and he'll sometimes, you know, tweak a little bit of a thing here and like start to build something. But he was always the programmer. He was always the one that basically got the thing to the finish line and made it work and made it look good. Whereas when they started using chat GPT, he refused. He was, you know, at immediately, you know, wanted it at arm's length and didn't like the idea and thought it wasn't going to produce good code. And then they would start building, they would continue their process of building small projects and stuff together and suddenly when he would try to tackle a problem he wouldn't have an immediate solution to it 
and he'd kind of tinker with it for a day and then think like, okay, well, I'll come up with something tomorrow. And then the next day they would start and his friend would already have it. And not only that, he would have it built like a couple of iterations and he'd have something complete to do exactly what they needed to do. And it was literally something that that guy couldn't actually do. He, or, or at least if he was going to figure it out, it was going to take him way, way longer. And because of ChatGPT, because of, or Replit, whatever it was that he was using, suddenly he is actually producing output of these little programs and projects much faster than the seasoned programmer. So I think the conditions are right that there's this very, very realistic possibility of a sort of renaissance in the open source community. Because what you really need, what drives open source is motivation. It's passion and the pressure to build something to get around a problem. If you notice on GitHub and most open source projects, the vast majority of them are passion projects. There's a really great book called For Love and For Profit. And it's about open source uh, code, the open source environment and development. And it, one of the things that you notice if you just kind of look at the data is that the overwhelming majority of open source projects are really just in, entirely maintained by like one or two people who are just like really passionate and really love it. And they just, they just do it. Or excuse me, the book is, the book is titled For Fun and For Profit. And it's by a... Christopher Tozzi, Tozzi. I'll have the link in the show notes if you're interested, and you can always find it on prodcast.io. Um, uh, that's the website uh, built by a friend of mine, a Bitcoiner, who uh, uh, they have AI listening to the podcast, and if I ever recommend a book or something, it shows up on prodcast.io, uh, on the Bitcoin Audible page specifically, which I thought was a really cool, like really clever idea. And it essentially auto builds in puts in like a, a affiliate link and like a little bit like a like a buffer or whatever so it's it's really a way to support the show um so if you are interested in it and you want to get that book and you're happy to toss a couple of dollars of it uh to bitcoin audible uh that's a great place to do it but i'll have the link in the show notes as well but having that in mind as a a fundamental element of the open source ecosystem empowering millions of more people to become developers and to tweak things, to be able to make small edits and, you know, just improve the aesthetic or the location of something in a UX or in a UI that's going to alter how they use it to get more feedback from more people that can actually be meaningful, that can actually be iterated on and tested. Like we can just build it to do it this way really quick see how it feels, and if it doesn't, we go back. That's why I kind of think, and I've used the analogy before, as a lot of these large language models, specific, like their real power is in code. I really think the power of large language models, the 10x, the 100x productivity and like e ecosystem value production improvement is in code. It is in development. And that's why I use the analogy that it's like the 3D printer for ideas. It's the 3D printer for the mind is how do you aggressively iterate in the digital space and test things out and explore in the same way that a 3D printer can just like print you a bunch of different types of versions of a product without the entire manufacturing line. Like you have this additive manufacturing that just has this window of capability for all of the different things that you could make. You tweak it on a digital in a digital space 
and you can just print out an entirely different product, an entirely different shape. LLMs are kind of like additive manufacturing for the mind. And I think it changes the dynamic enough. I think it changes the technological landscape and what's possible enough that we could potentially see a, like I said, a renaissance in the open source environment. And to mitigate this problem, to mitigate the, the cracking down on the regulatory environment and the strict control that they're going to try to grasp onto when it comes from the traditional financial system and all of the avenues in which we have to interact with that. I think where it might make sense to shift our mindset is not just in building better user tools, tools, but provide better uh, uh, service tools, provider tools. So using the analogy that Shinobi brings up in PlebNet is imagine like everybody in PlebNet is a, a literal pleb who is running a lightning node and is setting up channel liquidity and is learning how to manage the transactions, the flow, the, you know, the, the arrangements between separate nodes in order to establish a strong position in the Lightning Network so that payments are reliable and there's heavy liquidity to move through. But the Telegram channel, the PlebNet Telegram channel uh, that I am in has 4,814 members. Imagine if every single one of them was the host when they, when they tell their family member to use uh, you know, Wallet of Satoshi, or they tell them to use Nodeless or any other service. It's going to simplify their experience and their ability to do, to just kind of use it without thinking. Imagine instead of those 4,814 people directing their friends and family to those services, that instead they were hosting their own service for their friends and family. You had like just that alone, 4,814 people services that could be provided at a small to medium small scale and both the idea of like being mad about that or attacking that or even trying to enforce rules at that level is not only idiotic not only embarrassing that's that's like one of the things that shinobi points out that i think is really important to consider is that you know you running a node for your family for them to go after you would be so um, unbelievably embarrassing. Can you imagine the PR that they believe we're so much a slave to whatever they want that we just have to do anything that they possibly can, that we can't run a piece of cons computer software for our friends and family. I can already see the memes. They would be glorious. But the thing is, is I don't, I think they don't even think that it's going to be an issue in the sense that you wouldn't have to enforce it on that level because they think this is going to be the traditional financial system all over again. The fundamental difference, I believe, is lost on them. So a good example, or an analogy maybe, is that at the beginning of the internet, the internet was truly disrupting every single industry. And it kind of cascaded through. As it got more bandwidth and got more users, the new avenue of undermining the old system started to gain the necessary bandwidth to be a major disruptor. And I would say probably first it, it started with kind of novel, novel items, not novel systems and services that could be on the internet. It was email, like started to really kind of eat into 
the way that we communicated with each other. It started to become really normal for everybody to have an email. Then chat rooms became popular. And then, you know, everybody was like, it was, it was like a big thing to start up a website and you had the dot-com bubble. And then it really got into file sharing. Napster, you know, blew up and suddenly we're really messing with the music industry and the way that small files are being handled and the way that music is packaged together. And so the landscape started, t- started taking punches at the copyright industry and the incumbents in the media distribution. Then BitTorrent landed and really started to mess things up. And that's when the, the environment started to shift, when they started to basically concede the technological advantage. And you got iTunes and, you know, buy every song, like buy a single song for 99 cents. You'd have to buy an album anymore. And uh, then, you know, slowly but surely streaming and, you know, the Netflix rent a DVD over, you know, through mail. And then, you know, they use that as their leverage to their, their base to start into streaming. Retail got hit and Amazon started to blow up and then social came in. And then with the, the smartphone wave, with the mobile wave, social grew to the point where it became the dominant form of news. It became the dominant form by which we transmit or weigh the value of information of the narratives that move through our social groups. And that has really messed things up. This, what I think we're looking at right now from really 2016, I think, is, is kind of like one of those events that really shows just to what degree that landscape has shifted. So probably going back to like the 2014 era to now, 2023, 2024, this, I think, will be the heart of the shift of the movement from legacy media and legacy news, the broadcasting agencies having control over the quote-unquote national narrative to the social media landscape being the dominant form of narrative bandwidth, so to speak. But you know what has largely been entirely untouched through all of this? Banking. Banking and finance. Now, it's gotten a quote-unquote digital upgrade. You know, everybody uses their banking app, and everybody has Cash App or Venmo or Zelle or anything like that. There's plenty of new services on top of it. But those aren't really disruptive services because they don't alter the relationship at the base. You still have to work with somebody who has a banking license. You're still in a permission system. That is not the internet doing money. That is just a digital face, a mobile interface for the old system. And I think what these regulators are failing to recognize is that that is actually finally changing. And if you thought it was volatile, and crazy to watch the social media world undermine the news agencies and the the stranglehold that the political apparatus and the major media outlets, the, the corporate media, had on the national narrative. You thought that was crazy? We're about to see that truly. We're about to really see that happen with money. What we have seen up to this point has actually just been a small corner of the space that is actually going to change. It's just been the, it's kind of like that first few years of the internet in the sense that only technically literate people were using it. Only the people who really understood the tools, like like they used it because it was fascinating to understand this packet switching technology. And it, it was everybody at the edge, everybody at the forefront of the technical or the forefront of the technology itself. The people who were just excited about the tools themselves. 
That in a sense has been where we have where we have been in Bitcoin this whole time, both from the those who were fascinated with the tool from an economic perspective and fascinated with the tool from a purely technological perspective. While the hype cycles were just speculators gambling on it without any without any real knowledge. But every single time we set a higher base, we build a stronger foundation for the next wave until we are getting to the point where this is going to be easy enough for essentially everyone to use in some capacity. Now, I think the legacy system, the regulators, the politicians, the major corporations, the major banks, I think what they think is that there is going to be the, the major banks of the Bitcoin services, of those who provide Bitcoin. And it's going to, the landscape is going to look exactly like it used to. It's just who is going to get the piece of the Bitcoin pie related to that economic system. When I think this is more, this is far more like the internet in that this is open and permissionless and it's actually going to undermine the way they do business. It won't be which big bank is in charge. It will be what kind of services do we have that actually undermine the concept of having a bank in the first place? I liken this back to uh, the episode Banks Without Bankers, uh, the piece by um, uh, Eric Yakes. I think just extending forward from where we are with the technology, I think that's a really good mental model to use. And to think about in a hostile regulatory environment, what that might look like. How would you actually get to that place? How would you actually provide those services? And I think that's where we come in. We don't have to try to set up like huge businesses and you know, be in the corporate environment and you know, get a banking license and all this crap. Maybe all we need to do is just help our friends and family by hosting a service as Uncle Jim. Same as you might, I don't know, like host a wedding website. You know, you put up a website for a wedding and you direct everybody to it and all your friends and family can go to it and check it out and they can, you know, you got links to your register and all that sort of stuff. But it's just kind of a purpose built for that. What if we could get another 10 to 20x scaling by thinking about it that way? By thinking about it, thinking about Plebnet not just as a bunch of lightning nodes, but as a bunch of lightning providers. And what happens when we add eCash into the mix? When we start to build this out with Fediment? We basically have these two protocols working in tandem within a wallet or within, within a node interface. I don't know. I, I read this article, um, and I think, I think it was Michael Matliff, actually, who sent me this. Actually, it was somebody. It was somebody in the, uh, in the audio notes. Whoever it was, thank you. Sorry, I forgot. <laughs> But I really liked this idea, and I think it's something that we should call attention to again, that we should refocus on, because I think in the transition era, which we are in, and the at the same time, the then-they-fight-you era, this is probably our best short-term correction for where things are headed. We can get around these problems, we just have to think about it differently. And the only area where the banking license and the regulators, where these things are going to be, continue to be a big problem is just on the fiat side. So the more business and the more services we can set up directly with Bitcoin, and the more we can provide that value, we can provide those services and the, that, that software to our friends and family, and we can get them onboarded, the more we can just maybe just get around that problem and go directly to the people that we're interacting with. Anyway, great article. 
Um, I think a really important idea, and especially timely with where we found ourselves, it's crazy how much has happened in just the last month when it comes to the environment in the regulatory environment and where it seems like everything's going in the traditional finance system and in the political space. And I think we need a real counter to it. And the Uncle Jim model is something that has just been poorly nurtured is probably the way to think about it. And so I wanted to make it fresh in your mind again. And a shout out to Shinobi. I swear to God, this is, this is just about to become the Shinobi Audible podcast. I think we've done like 20 of his articles now. So another shout out to him. I will have the links to follow him and check out his stuff in the show notes. And we will wrap that one up here. A huge thank you to CoinKite for the amazing hardware products that they create. The uh, cold card hardware wallet in particular. I was actually paying for something in Bitcoin today and I usually use Lightning. uh, But Lightning wasn't available and it was a little bit too much. Uh, They had like a lower limit for uh, being able to buy that. I was buying something from Crypto Cloaks. Because I was using on-chain, I had to break out my hardware wallet, which for the mobile setup that I have, the quick, the really quick one to get to was my tap signer. And it was still just cool. I was still in the conversation. And every single time I do it, I'm just kind of in love with how easy and quick it is that I just do the, do the transaction, set it up, pull out my tap signer. It's so funny. It feels like paying with like a debit card on my phone that I'm like swiping it or something. But I literally just hold it up to my phone. I scan Uh, the transaction and it signs, and then I broadcast. And you can do the exact same thing with the cold card. I just happen to have my tap signer is always on me in my pocket, in my wallet. You can get 9% off, especially, they also make really good gifts, by the way. It's obviously the holiday season. And if you know somebody who is not holding their own keys and needs to, if you truly love them, show them with the cold card hardware wallet. Thank you guys again. I hope you enjoyed that read. And I will catch you on the next one. Don't forget to subscribe. And a shout out to Orange Pilled, actually, who uh, uh, posted on Noster, uh, left me a review on one of the podcast apps. I'm not sure. Maybe this was Apple. Hard to even say. Uh, doesn't doesn't seem to have a label here. But thank you. Thank you. That really does help the show. And I super appreciate it. Shout out Orange Pilled. I see you all the time. I know we've had multiple conversations, but uh, good to see you. And I appreciate the support. To all the other audio knots out there, I love you. And I am happy to be with you on this journey into our bright orange future. This is Bitcoin Audible. I am Guy Swan. And until next time, everybody, take it easy, guys. Not everyone can see a tree within a seed. Nikki Verd.